Let me begin by confessing to you, rather acknowledging, that I am a dying man speaking to men and women, boys and girls, who are also dying. Our time on this world, in this flesh, is but a vapor. Let me furthermore acknowledge that by the grace of God, I'm going to preach this morning like it's the last time I will ever preach. And some of the things that I'm going to preach, you are not going to like, and will maybe even leave here calling me narrow-minded, and you might even dislike me for some of the things that I'm going to say. And this is the difficulty of preaching, because those who preach the Word of God are told that they will be held to a higher standard and a weightier judgment. But if I'm rightly dividing the word of truth, and if what I am saying is consistent with God's intent when He laid Scripture out, then the burden falls upon you. And the question is, what will you do with what you are enlightened with this morning from the truth of Scripture? And if you choose to disregard it, then you will give an account to God. And so the really only question that you need to ask yourself this morning is, am I, this preacher, rightly dividing the word of truth, and if I am, will you pray for God's strength to align your life to be consistent with the truth of Scripture? Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that your spirit would open our heart and empower us to live out according to your word so that you will be glorified in our lives, you will be glorified throughout eternity, and you will bless the one life we have to live for you on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you think if I told you that last night a tornado tore through a junkyard? And scrap metal was flying everywhere. And when the tornado left the junkyard, in its wake was a 2016 beautiful red Mercedes with plush interior that was stitched so nicely. And I mean, all the electronics worked. And on the dashboard, there was one of those cameras that that had the reverse camera on it. The headlights were fully functional. The off-light, in-light, the GPS system was functional. And it was a phenomenal accident, a freak of nature. Would you believe that? Or would you look at that Mercedes and back calibrate and say there must be a designer behind it? In the same way, 
When we look at the creation and we look at the cosmos and we look at the universe and we look at the earth that's tilted at a perfect 23 degree angle and if it were tilted any more or any less, all the waters would go to the north or south and freeze and all life would die. If the crust of the ocean's floor were any thicker or any deeper, the vegetable life would be off balance and all ocean life would die. If the earth were any closer to the moon than what it is now or any further away than all the tidal waves. Tidal waves would be 30 to 50 feet high and and submerge all of the continents. And it goes on and on and on and on. If, If our gravity were just a little heavier or a little lighter, life would be impossible. And even atheists agree with these things. And then you look at the miracle of life and reproduction and the human eye. And I was holding a baby just this past week and looked at the detail in its knuckles and its fingernails and the love that the parents had for it. And you have to back calibrate and say it's really impossible that an accidental freak of nature called the Big Bang or whatever else you want to call it created this intricate design that we call life. And the Bible says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But what I also want to draw our attention to in the real subject matter of, of, of today is to also look at the evil in the world, the atrocities of ISIS, the beheading of babies because they're from Christian families, the crucifixion of those parents, the Holocaust, the genocides, the ethnic cleansing, The serial killing, the shootings, what we just witnessed this past week in Oregon, the the, the insane shootings for no other reason than the fact that they admitted that they were Christians, or the insane shooting a few months back for no other reason than that they were African Americans. And you look at this and you have to back calibrate and say, is this just nature off kilter or is there a design behind the evil? If there's a design behind the order, if there's a design behind the good, if there's a design behind the life and the love, and we call that designer God, then we have to ask ourselves, is there a design behind the evil? And if there is, who is it? Where did he come from? And what is this thing all about? So let's look at our text verse. As we begin a series today, overcome your struggle in this Series is beginning with the title, An Introduction to Spiritual Warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And as you're going to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and it's also in your outline, which is inside your bulletin, as you're going there... Do you recall a great movie that came out called The Matrix? Do you remember, I believe his name was Thomas Anderson? Thomas Anderson's world was rocked. His world was shaken when he realized that the real stuff of life was not the visible. The real stuff of life was the invisible. In fact, anything that was visible and physical in his world was moved and influenced by that which was invisible and of a different world. And he realized that he was the one. He was the chosen one to affect things in the invisible other world, which was then set everybody free and affect things in the visible, in the physical world. 
Well, let's see what God says about the the good and the evil in this titan, colossal conflict between the two and you and me in the midst of it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me read that again a little slower. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Ephesians six twelve. And you may be thinking, now come on, do you really believe in a devil with a pitchfork and... No, of course I don't believe in a devil with red pointy ears and a pitchfork and a, you know, a red swinging tail. Of course not. That's make-believe. I, I, I absolutely believe in the satanic, the Satan, the Lucifer, the Beelzebub, the roaring lion, the serpent of Scripture. And this Satan was an angel of light, the most beautiful of all of God's creation. He masquerades as an angel of light. And he's one of the most powerful of all God's creations, if not the most powerful of all of God's creation. He was an angelic being. And the sheer sights of this angelic being would strike terror in your soul as we know that when God's messengers, Michael and Gabriel, stood before people... The people's response was not what you might think if you think angels look like what artists have have rendered them. When angels stood before people, they had to say, fear not, because their appearance was so overwhelming and so striking. But we see renderings of angels where they wouldn't say, fear not, they would just say, there, there. And it's tender. But these angels are warriors, and they are splendorous. Now let's look at this, for our struggle. What does this word struggle mean? For our struggle. Now when Paul's original hearers heard this word struggle, they immediately thought of something specific, wrestling. Now, when you and I hear struggle, our our wrestle, we think of wrestling, and we think of wrestling like, like we might see today in the Olympics. It was a very different form of wrestling. And as soon as they heard that word wrestle, they thought of something very specific. Just like if we said football, referencing American football, you would think of something very specific. And I wouldn't have to go into great detail explaining American football, because you'd have an idea of American football, and Monday night football, and then all the hype surrounding it. And, and when they said wrestling, there was something very specific. That came to mind. The word wrestle is P-A-L-E, pale in the Greek. And it means to wrestle, and it's a shorter version of palastra. And this word palastra that pale is derived from is a very interesting word. The word palastra is like a colosseum. And we might call it a boxing arena. Or actually, probably more specific, it would be like the, the, the cage fighting. But it was far more gruesome and far more graphic than that. Now, in this particular culture, in all the major metropolitan cities, they had these palastras. They had these colosseums that were built for fights. And that was their sports and that was their entertainment. They also had gymnasiums. Gymnasiums boys went into. And it was kind of like the YMCA. They would read and they would, they would stretch and they would do aerobics and they would exercise their bodies. The plaster was very different. The plaster was only for men to fight. 
And their boxing was very different than our boxing. Our boxers wear boxing gloves. Their boxers had leather straps that would be about 13 feet long, and they would wrap them very tightly all around their bodies, and then very tightly around their fists, and there would be nails and razors on their knuckles. And that's how they fought. Nothing was off limits. And then their wrestling, they would uh, gouge out eyes, They would try to snap necks. They would break backs. It was very gruesome. And they fought to the death. They didn't fight until somebody said, okay, I'm down for the 10 count. They fought until the death. And so when Paul said, for our struggle, everybody woke up and they go, okay, it's on. It's serious. He's talking about something very forceful, very graphic, very violent. Very serious. He's talking about a struggle, a wrestle, a fight to the death. For our palais, our struggle, it is not against flesh and blood. In other words, that in which we are up against is not the physical and the visible. That in which we are up against is influenced by the spiritual and the invisible. And so Paul is saying, for our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, meaning if you want to see things change in the physical and the visible, you have to first change things in the spiritual and invisible, because then the spiritual and visible will influence the physical and the visible. And the reason is so many Christians are walking around defeated, dejected, addicted, hopeless, joyless, is because we are trying to deal with things in the physical and the visible instead of affecting things in the spiritual and invisible to in turn affect things in the physical and the visible. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Did you see how many times he said against for our struggle is against rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms our spiritual struggle is against 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 this word against is the same word used in John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God that's the word against with God against with the same word. And it has a connotation of being shoulder to shoulder, with, against, or even more than that, face to face, even forehead to forehead. Our struggle is face to face, forehead to forehead, with the spiritual wickedness and evil in the heavenly realms. So in order to affect change in our physical realm, we must first affect change in the spiritual realm. And I know you may be thinking, okay, come on, demons and Satan and evil. And... But let me just propose to you. Did you know that the Western civilized thought process is one of the only cultures in the world that denies the existence of this dark spiritual realm? Asian cultures, Latin cultures, African cultures embrace it as, as if it's as obvious as the back of their hands. And yet we in our enlightenment disregard it. Could it be that we are not the enlightened ones? Could it be that we are the narrow-minded ones? Could it be that we are the ignorant ones? Could it be that we could learn something from their cultures? Could it be that we are the simplistic ones not to consider that there is another realm that's influencing this realm? And can we afford to take that gamble? And can we afford to bury our head in the sands? So, let me ask you, 
Where did Satan come from? What is his mission? What is his strategy? And where is he going? And that will conclude our introduction to spiritual warfare. This is such a broad topic. I wrestled so much in preparing this morning's sermon because not what do I teach, but what do I not teach? It's so important and it's so broad. And that's why we're going to spend about the next four or five Sundays on it. And so let's start with this. Where did Satan come from? Interestingly, Jesus said, after the disciples returned, casting out demons, and they had joy, and Jesus said, yeah, yeah, demons submit to my name. And then he said, this is nothing new, demons running from the name of Christ. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then we read about it in Isaiah chapter 14. A mysterious passage, but very enlightening as to what unfolded in the spiritual realm when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. Now, let me, let me just preface this by saying that there are three angels' names mentioned throughout Scripture. There's 66 books in the Bible, Genesis through Revelations, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And in these 66 books, we see that angels' names are mentioned three times, or three different angels' names are mentioned. There's Gabriel. Anytime the name Gabriel was mentioned, he's always dispatching some communication from the throne of God. There's Michael. Anytime Michael's name is mentioned, he's always warring on behalf of the children of Israel. He's a fighter. And then there's Lucifer, the devil, Satan. And we glean from this passage in Isaiah chapter 14, whereas Gabriel would have been in charge with communications, and Michael would have been in charge of war. He would have been our secretary, the, the secretary of defense. And, and Lucifer... Because we discern from it that he was the bright morning star, and when he is cast in the lake of fire, he brings, the scriptures say, his harp with him, that he was in charge of worship. And so we see that God, perhaps, amongst his angelic creatures, had three uh, vice presidents, three directors overseeing departments. It was the Department of Communication, headed up by Gabriel, the Department of War, headed up by Michael, and the Department of Worship, offering glory to Christ, headed up by none other than Lucifer himself. So Lucifer has fallen. Have you ever wondered, has somebody taken his place in heaven to worship God? Yes. That's the church. That's why the church was created with the Spirit of Christ in us, because now we replace Lucifer to ascribe glory unto Jesus Christ. Listen to Satan's descent from heaven and what caused that that descent. Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. Why the earth? Why didn't God send Lucifer to another planet? Why, why didn't God just eradicate? Because though it's a mystery, this is part of the gospel. Jesus Christ was slain before the very foundation of the earth. That means that the gospel was ordained and Jesus ordained to die for your sins on the cross even before the foundation of the earth. And so this drama was allowed to to unfold so that we could choose Christ, to worship Christ, to have a relationship with Christ. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart... And look at the sin that resulted in Satan's demise. It was pride. It wasn't murder. It wasn't lust. It wasn't adultery. It wasn't one of these things that we think are the real big ones. He didn't curse God out. It was pride. 
And this is still, by the way, the sin that wreaks the greatest amount of havoc in the church today. Pride. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And God said, no, you won't. And he cast him down to earth like a bolt of lightning. And his tail swooped a third of the angels with him. Why did the third of the angels follow? I believe that they were the third of the angels that were under his jurisdiction, under his leadership in heaven. And these angels are what we call today demons. And again, the first sin in the cosmos was pride. Now, let's look at what is Satan's mission. Jesus said about Satan, the thief comes only, only, not mostly, only, to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal your life. He wants to steal your mind. He wants to, to steal your calling. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your identity in Christ. That's a big one that we're going to be looking at. He wants to steal your body to destroy everything. The thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy, Jesus says. One of, not his only, but one of his weapons that he's used so masterfully is lying and deceit and twisting the truth just a shade. In fact, Jesus said, when Satan lies, he's speaking his native language. And he's the father of all lies. Peter writes, be alert and of a sober sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, and I think it's also interesting that Satan is described as a serpent. Did you know that serpents don't have eyelids? They never blink. They're always watching. How descriptive of Satan. He never sleeps. He roams the earth literally like a flash of lightning back and forth as do the demons. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, as we continue to read in Ephesians chapter 6, we see that there's spiritual armor that we can wear. There's the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. There's the sword of the spirit. There's the belt of truth. There's fitting our feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. But interestingly, the breastplate of righteousness, amongst all of this offensive armor, is a defensive piece of armor. The breastplate of righteousness. And it's a defensive piece of armor that covers what? Our heart. That means if we ever take the breastplate of righteousness off, we give Satan an opportunity to shoot an arrow into our heart. And to crush our joy, to crush our hope, to crush our identity, to crush our prayer life, and even to crush faith in God. So that we don't even believe that Christ is Christ and God is real. And let me ask you, have you removed your breastplate of righteousness? And if you entered into a spiritual warfare, whether like it or not, you were engaged in it, have you removed your breastplate of righteousness and give Satan a shot to deflate your heart, your joy, your calling, your prayers, your life, your very faith in Jesus Christ? Have you given him a shot at that? We give Satan a shot to deflate our hearts through any rebellion, through any lack of righteousness in our lives, through any lust, through any pornography, through any pride, any bitterness, any jealousy, any anger, we give Satan an opportunity to deplete, to deplete our hearts. So what is Satan's strategy? And this is what we're going to be talking about for the remainder of the series over the next month. Finally, be strong in the Lord and put it, and in His mighty power, put on the full armor of God. 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes and strategies. The word schemes, it means strategies. So over the next four to five weeks, we're going to be looking at direct encounters people from the Old Testament had with Satan himself. Direct encounters. And we're going to analyze these encounters, and we're going to look at what was Satan's objectives, what were his strategies, what were his weapons, what was their defense, what were their weaknesses, and what are the New Testament applications to that in our life today. The four people who had direct conflict, direct confrontation with Satan in the Old Testament were Eve, Job, David, and Joshua. And next week we're going to see how Satan attacked Eve's mind, the weapon lies. His purpose was to keep her ignorant of truth and what her defense and offense should have been in that situation. And then the following week, we'll look at Job. Satan's target upon Job was his body. Satan's weapon, suffering. His purpose in that. And, and then our defense. And then we'll look at David and Joshua and so forth and so on. And we will unpack and disclose his strategies so that we can stand firm against the enemy. Because we have to fight the enemy with spiritual weapons. You know, if if NASA puts a guy on the moon, they have to take into account that there's a different atmosphere and plan accordingly. And in the same way, we don't fight the spiritual battle the same way that we fight stuff here. I mean, we just just roll up our sleeves and, and swing harder, right? In the business world, just get mean or just get more abrasive. Whatever it might be, it works entirely different in the spiritual realm. And so we're going to look at the spiritual weapons that we use to fight back the enemy in our life. For example, the children of Israel were battling the Amalekites, and it was a valley. Moses, their leader, was standing on top of a cliff. And any time he was interceding for the army, his hands were raised, and they were winning. But his shoulders began burning. The battle was lasting all day. He began to lower his arms, and then the tide of the battle shifted, and the Amalekites began to win. They discerned what was going on. As Moses was touching things in the spiritual realm, the spiritual things was touching things in the physical realm. So Aaron and Hur got on each side of Moses, and they set Moses on a rock, and they held him up. And as long as they were interceding for their leader, their leader was interceding for the people, and the people were victorious. We see in Daniel chapter 10, that Daniel began to pray. And then an angel was dispatched from heaven with the answer to Daniel's prayer. And Satan himself realized the importance and the severity of the situation, so he challenged. In the spiritual heavenly realms, he confronted and challenged that angel dispatched with Daniel's answer. But Daniel continued to pray and for 21 days prayed and fasted. So heaven, God once again dispatched Michael the Ark warring angel to assist the angel that was previously dispatched. And then Daniel finally received his answer. And all that to say, we touch things in the physical realm by first touching things in the spiritual realm. And so we have to know how to fight. You know, we had a prayer meeting here a couple years ago. Iris, David were here. We were sitting right up here. A few, I think a few others were here. And as we were praying, a family came in. And as soon as the family came in, the daughter was maybe 15 years old, dressed in a, a long red dress. Her hair was flat. And I just thought, it just felt like something out of a movie as soon as they walked in. I didn't know them. They came in and sat down and we said, can we pray for you? It was on a Sunday evening. And the mother said, yes, our daughter has demons. 
We said, okay. So I addressed the daughter. She was a very sweet, sweet, kind, gentle girl. And then we prayed. And that daughter went to sleep. And something else began communicating through her. And I asked, I would ask questions. And without even looking at the phone, they were typing the answer to the questions talking about, I will not profess the name of Christ, talking about, you know, referring to themselves as as a he and referring to the daughter in the third person, you won't take her, I'll destroy her. 13, 14, or 15-year-old girl. Well, this girl ended up running into the balcony and with no fear like she was out of it, not even mindful of her surroundings, not even mindful of her equilibrium, ran up to the balcony and put one foot on each side of the rail, standing there threatening to throw that girl off and kill her. Isn't that right, Iris? And it happened just like that? Some family members came up and restrained the young lady. She was yelling and she was screaming. And I observed this. Do you know what I did? I just prayed in the Spirit. Not yelling, not yelling at the demon. Just prayed in the Spirit. And this girl's screaming immediately stopped and she glared at me and said something about you holy man of God or something of this nature. And all of that to say, it was touching things in the spiritual that touched things in the natural and calm that girl for that moment. And I just share that to say, this stuff is real. And I've seen it many times. The, the physical and the visible is touched as we touch things in the spiritual and the invisible. But we have to understand what we're up against. And there, there were two great mistakes in dealing with spiritual warfare. The first great mistake is to deny its existence. The second great mistake is to have an unhealthy obsession with it. So that you're walking around and, you know, screaming at demons when it's just the wind that was blowing the bush kind of deal. Our, our, our greatest weapon against spiritual warfare is walking in righteousness and believing the truth of Scripture, who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. And so we will be unpacking this spiritual warfare and how we can move things in the spiritual and visible that will then move things into physical and visible in our lives. And so with the remaining time that we have together with this introduction to spiritual warfare, let me just close out by talking about where is Satan going? I thought what a better way to conclude our introduction to spiritual warfare by talking about where is Satan going? Because when you look at the evil that he has wreaked in our society, this kind of makes you happy a little bit. Okay, where is Satan going? Look at this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into that lake of fire and sold for where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And again, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into that eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What is Satan's ultimate destiny? Satan's ultimate destiny is a lake of fire where he will burn forever and ever and ever. So what is hell like? Since we 
this is where Satan's going, and we know the torment that he has caused. So let's just look for a moment, what is hell like? And you may be saying, come on now, heaven, hell, listen, I believe the truth of Scripture. And to deny hell is to deny something that Jesus talked about more than, than, than heaven, more than, 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 than love, more than giving, more than anything combined. The truth of it is a reality. I don't care if it's not politically correct. I, I'm not a politician. I'm a minister of the Word of God. And so I'm going to preach the truth in full force and in full disclosure. Because as I told our deacons this morning, it is very sobering. As I was thinking about this on the way to church this morning, I think about it often, but I was just really pondering on the way to church this morning. It is so sobering to consider that all of our lives are a vapor. And you're going to slip into eternity. And it's my job, it's our job as leaders to make sure that you are prepared to stand before God. And that means we better be sure that our theology is sound and that your lives align with sound theology. Because eternity is a long time and souls are precious and we love you and it is sober to consider that reality. And so I'm not concerned about whether or not this is politically correct because again, the Latin, the Asian, the African cultures readily receive the reality of a spiritual warfare and demonic powers and the reality of heaven and hell. So could it be that we in our westernized mindset who must have a pragmatic scientific conclusion for everything are the ones who are narrow-minded and naive and ignorant? What is hell like? Well, let me read a little bit about Satan's end. Hell is confinement. It is utter confinement. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. This is when Lucifer is cast into the lake of fire. Sheol, or the lake of fire, hell, beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. Speaking, prophesying about Lucifer. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises, they raise from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. When Satan does descend into the lake of fire, his bed will be maggots, and the covers that won't let him even move his arms will be worms. That is his end. Secondly, hell is darkness. Bind them hand and foot and cast them into outer darkness. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. Thirdly, hell is torment. Have you ever like had a sharp pain in your side or a sharp cramp? Or have you ever hit your maybe thumb with a hammer and you gnashed your teeth? A sharp pang that lasted a second. Multiply that by infinity. And that is the pang that's going to last for eternity without relenting for a moment. Hell is torment. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And fourthly, hell is conscious death. The lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Who is 
this lake prepared for, it's prepared for the devil and his angels. But hell will make accommodations for souls that have sinned. Its original intent, its original design, the scriptures teach us, were for the devil and his angels. But as sin entered the world, hell makes accommodation for those souls who are stained with sin. And you say, well, that's not fair. It is just. And I ask you, how could we possibly trust a God who is disinterested and uncommitted to justice. How could that God be good? When we look at the atrocities in this world, how could a God who will not have a day of reckoning and bring justice about be trusted and good? However, there is an alternative to souls who are stained with sin, and that is heaven. What is heaven like? Heaven is uninterrupted fellowship with God. John writes, and if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What is heaven like? Heaven is rest from the battle. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. My dear friend, David Russell uh, Iris's husband, who we recently had his funeral service, a, a friend came up to me after the beautiful service and, uh, and said, uh, that was the easiest funeral service you will ever preach, isn't it? And I said, it's absolutely the easiest sermon I will ever preach. He was a man of God who preached the gospel every chance he got. When he talked about Jesus, tears streamed down his cheeks filled with faith, love for his Savior, walked after Christ. It was sorrowful because we miss him, but a joyful because we know he's in heaven service. And he's with his Savior now. And this is what heaven is. It is uninterrupted fellowship with God. Thirdly, we will serve the Lord in heaven. We're not going to be sitting around on on clouds playing the harp with angels' wings. Uh, It's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be passionate, vibrant, alive, full. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Fourth, we will have full knowledge. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. I was beside the bed of a good friend of mine who was about ready to slip into eternity. Her husband had gone on to heaven about seven years before her. His name was Tommy. And she said, well, I know Tommy when I get to heaven. And I said, the truth of the matter is, you won't really know him until you do get to heaven. And then when you see him, you're going to know him as Christ knows him and love him like you never imagined and be known and loved like you never imagined, not only with Tommy, but by every saint who is in heaven, which brings us to five. Heaven is a place of continuous glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And over the last couple of weeks, I think it's interesting that Fort Worth has had a couple of uh, millionaires, even billionaires, that have died. And they've, they've served our city greatly, and they were great men. Our city has also had some homeless folks that have died. And you want to know what? Death has made them equal. Because we all stand before God, equal sinners, equally saved by the grace of God. 
And if we've received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are equally righteous. And if we have not, we are equally lost. I believe that it's interesting that it's interesting that when the when the beggar died, Jesus said, and this wasn't a parable like a certain man was sowing seed, because when Jesus used parables, he didn't use direct names. This was an exact event that happened, and Jesus related. He said, There was a beggar that died, his name was Lazarus. He was a homeless guy. He was a beggar. People just walked by him. I mean he had sores all over him. They didn't want to touch him. I mean he was a castaway in their society. He died. Angels of God, these powerful, glorious, splendorous angels, angels, plural, carried Lazarus into paradise. I mean, one angel could have done the job. No angels were necessary. What was that? That was honor. That was respect. You see, what we esteem, God doesn't esteem. In fact, God detests pride and pomp. And what we throw away, God honors And the more we develop the heart of God, the more we begin loving and respecting and honoring things that maybe the world overlooks. And the more we begin to have a distaste and a disflavor for the things that the world is so drunk with and lusts after. But it was the angels that carried Lazarus into paradise. I don't know if the millionaires and billionaires who died this past couple of weeks, they're on the front page. I don't know if they're in Christ. And I don't know if the homeless folks were in Christ, but I know if they were, oh, they received an escort of honor and respect and splendor into the very courts of Jesus Christ. Sixth, we will be in reunion and fellowship with one another. That's why, yes, when we see loved ones go on to heaven, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who are without hope. And if you have that pragmatic, western, Mindset that must have a scientific conclusion for everything. Let me just ask you to open your mind. Do you really think that life and the ability to choose and the ability to, to worship and the ability to live and to love and to hate and the miracle of life and the innate sense of right and wrong is an accident and only for a fleeting moment? The Bible says God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Open your heart up to that wisdom. Eternity is in our hearts so that we would choose Christ. We will be in reunion and fellowship with God, and that's why we are not as those who grieve without hope. We look forward to spending eternity with saints who have gone on before. Yes, it changes things here, and yes, it makes us sorrowful here. It gives us less to live for on earth, but more to look forward to in heaven. And then seven, we will be in constant worship. And we will sing hallelujah, the saints who are before the throne of God. Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for His judgments are true and just. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Let me close out our sermon with this statement by C.H. Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. Death comes to the ungodly man as a prison affliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. To the sinner, it is an execution. To the saint, an undressing from his sins and infirmities. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. 
Death to the saint is the end of terrors and the, commem- the commencement of glory. And the choice is ours. Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to pay the consequence and the price of your sins on the cross so that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, so was your sin. Your lust, your fornication, your adultery, your pride, your drunkenness, your addiction, your envy, your jealousy, your insubordination. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, so was your sin. And when Jesus rose from the grave, your sin and death stayed dead. But Jesus rose so that your hope arose. But in this battle for souls... Jesus is a gentleman, and so he invites you to choose him. And it is a colossal battle for souls. Whereas we see in wars today, nations are going after geographical territory. Isn't that what nations want? Geography. In this cosmic spiritual battle between God and Satan, what are they after? Geography on this planet? No. What are they after? Souls. Souls are the treasure. Souls is the end game. Souls is what matter. Your soul. Jesus died for your soul. To forgive you of your sins. To cleanse you of all unrighteousness. To make you his child. To assure you a place in heaven. Will you receive that? How do you do that? You've got to turn from your sin. You you and I, by nature, have this self-ruled, independent heart. Where we want to do life independently of God. But we have to turn from that. It's a word called repent. And we have to turn to Christ and surrender our life to Christ. And in heart, in an instant of our heart, we turn from sin, we turn to Christ, and we say, I place my trust in you, Christ, for my salvation. I place my confidence in what you did for me on the cross. I was in India, and our taxi cab driver had a... a, God, a Hindu God hanging from his rearview mirror, and it was all carved out and stuff. And, and I said, You believe that stuff? He says, Yes, yeah, it's my God. I think it was Ganesh. And I said, I can't believe you worship something that you created. Or you know it's obviously hand carved and somebody created the thing can't even talk. It can't think, it can't speak, it can't see, it can't hear. You worship that, it's dead. And if you continue to worship it, you'll be just as dead. I worship the God who created the universe. You worship the God that man created. I worship the God that created you. And this God loves you so much, he came from heaven to earth to a brutal, gruesome, horrific, bloody, beautiful, passionate cross, dripping with his own blood to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And he said, oh, I like Jesus. I like Jesus. I have a Bible at home. I said, no, you don't. See, Jesus is too big. He's too jealous. For you to like him and Ganesh and some other God, it's Jesus or nothing. You can have all these other gods. Or you can have Jesus. But you can't have both. And this is what it is to turn to Christ. And we say, you are our God. And I am yours. And I turn my life to you. Because really, haven't we made a mess of it on our own anyway? 
I turn my life to you. And I trust that you paid for my sins on the cross. And I ask that you come into my life and take over. Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my Savior. Would you pray that with me now? Would you bow your heads? Everybody repeat this in an audible prayer. Jesus, I have sinned. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I invite you into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. You are my God. My one and only God. And I am yours. Here I am. Take my life. I will follow. Give me eternal life. Help me to follow you. Amen. This is just the beginning of a critical series, an important series on spiritual warfare as we begin dissecting these direct encounters between the satanic realm and your life and learning how to fight them back with spiritual weapons. One of the great weapons that's at our disposal is worship. Worship is focusing out everything else and focusing in on Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Let's spend a moment and respond to Christ with worship. Bow your heads. If you want to worship Christ with a whole heart, raise your hand right now. Father, you see these hearts, these holy hands lifted high. Help us to worship you uninhibitedly, boldly, with all of our hearts. And let that worship overflow into our daily lives. Let's respond.